gospel lesson this morning is from John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of our Lord, the good news of our Savior Jesus. We pray, Lord May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our savior. Amen. I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another how my heart yearns within me. These are the words of Job written in the Old Testament and I don't know if there is a more concise, a more precise sermon that summarizes what the power of the resurrection means for you and your life. I know that my Redeemer lives and because he lives, I know that I will live even when I die. Can I let you guys in on a, on a little secret? So, first you have to know this. For, for a pastor to preach on Easter, there, there might be a little bit of pressure. It shouldn't be this way, but there's a little bit of pressure on the most holy of all days in Christendom to say something, 
to say something that is going to captivate the hearts of people who have heard the resurrection story hundreds of times before while simultaneously saying something that moves hearts of those people who, well, maybe haven't heard the Easter story so many times before. And so to avoid all of that pressure, here's my dream. Here's, here's what I'd like to do someday. One of these Easter's, I would like to get up here and just re-say Job's sermon. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he lives. Now you know that he lives. And now go live like you know he lives. Amen. But I'm not going to do that. And some of you are like, shoot, I was hoping for a sermon that was about that length. And I'm not going to do that, though, because today's Easter, and while I think that would be a complete sermon in and of itself, I think most of us are searching, are looking for something maybe a little more on Easter Sunday. You know what else I could do? On Easter, I could get up here and I could give you a boatload of evidence that attests to the historicity and the factuality of the Easter resurrection. I could give you evidence that even comes outside of what we have in the Bible. I could tell you about the Toledot Yezu, which is a first century piece of writing done by Jewish people. Jewish people who are hostile towards the Christian movement and wanted to see it fail. We could look at that and we could, we could talk about how in it they admit that the tomb is empty. And they also admit that the body was stolen and this is a story that they came up with. We could look at that story, that theory, the uh, stolen body theory, and I could let you know that for the past hundred years, scholars have considered that theory, well, dead, no pun intended, and they laugh at it now. We could study the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we could look at them from an academic and literary point of view and, and look at how these are as a consensus, looked at as real historical pieces of work, not the thing of legends. Because they mentioned people, real people, and real powerful people at that. People like Caiaphas, who is the high priest, the high priest of all of Israel, and who would have been alive during the time of Mark when the gospel was circulating. And he wouldn't have stood for his name being circulated in something of a myth. People like Joseph of Arimathea, who are mentioned by name, even mentioned as followers, the man who buried Jesus. He was the supreme court justice of the Jewish people. He wouldn't have stood to be a part of some Christian propaganda. We could look at the fact that the resurrection was first witnessed by women. And that's significant. That's important because I'm, I'm sorry to say this, lady, but it, ladies, it wasn't uh, 70 cents to a dollar then. No, it was actually a little worse. Literally and legally, women were looked at as less than in Jewish society. Their witness, their testimony, it didn't even have a place in the court of law. They weren't allowed to give it. And yet, they are the ones who first report and attest to the resurrection of Jesus. If you're trying to make up a story, you wouldn't have women tell that story. Unless, of course, it was true. And that's the stuff that comes outside of Scripture. We could look in Scripture where it's reported that 500 people witnessed and saw Jesus after the resurrection. 
We could talk about this one dude named Saul who wanted to kill Christians and put a stop to Christianity and suddenly decided to change his name to Paul and did everything in his power to make sure the gospel reached every corner of the world. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Lord. We could talk about how Christianity went viral in under two decades and it did it not by going to countries with the sword and making people submit. No, it did it even in spite of the fact that they were asked to submit under the sword and intense persecution. I could do that. I could stand up here and we could go into all of that evidence this morning and we could talk about how it proves the resurrection happened. But we're not going to do that either. You want to know why? It's because evidence is not enough. If you're following along on the sermon guide on page 8 in your, in your folder, that's our first fill in the blank today, is that evidence is not enough for Easter faith. It's not. It's not enough to create belief in the hearts of men and women who want to know if Jesus, Jesus rose or not. It's not enough to answer some of life's most searching questions. Is there an afterlife? What happens when I die? Who am I? What's my identity? What's my purpose in life? No, evidence isn't enough to give Easter faith. Evidence isn't enough to call off the search for Jesus. It's not enough to call off the search for all of those questions, all of those, all of those things that weigh on our hearts. And you want to know why I know that? It's because merely giving evidence, well, it didn't work for Jesus, and so it's not going to work for this pastor here in Fredericksburg today. I mean, consider the evidence. Mary, Mary had it all. This morning, what we're going to do instead is we're going to look at her story. We're going to look at the story of Mary. And if you have those questions about whether there is more to this life, who you are, what your purpose is. This is a story for you. Mary Magdalene, she was someone that a modern person might call a seeker. She was someone who was searching. She was someone who might say, you know what, the church thing, the religious thing, it's not really my scene, but I'm spiritual. And Mary held on to that belief because she had experience. She had firsthand experience of the otherworldliness of spiritualness. And the reason is because the Gospels tell us that Mary was possessed by seven demons. And when demons possessed your body, no, they didn't, they didn't take any care for your body. When a demon possessed your body, it had no regard. Scripture tells us that demons would take sharp objects and stones and they would gouge the flesh. Demons would throw the body on the fire and flames and not long enough to kill the body, but just long enough to disfigure it. Demons would drive people to sleep in graveyards. They would strip people naked and, and drive them out into the streets where they were disgraced. No, Mary was someone who was, who was socially traumatized. Personally, she was ostracized from everybody in her life. She was a woman who was searching. She was searching, she was looking for something, some, some rest for her soul. And then she met him. And then she, she found Jesus. 
And in a moment, everything, everything changed. Jesus, because of who he is, the son of the most high God, simply commanded that the demons came out and they had to listen. They left Mary. And as Americans, I don't think we can quite wrap our heads around what that moment must have meant for her. Not too many of us have experience with demon possession ourselves or seeing it in others. And so I don't think we can quite appreciate the moment she was cured, the moment she was made well, the moment she was given life because of Christ. And not just a new outlook on life. She was given a life. She was given something to do because when Jesus freed her, he didn't just do that. He also called her. He called her to be his follower, to be a Christian, to be a part of his disciple group and gave her a purpose all of a sudden, the person whom people would run from, now people came to for help as she supported and cared for the disciples, for Jesus and her ministry. And then she lost him. And just like that, everything that Jesus had given her was gone. That's why she's by the tomb on that first year Easter morning. She's again searching, looking for Jesus. All she wanted to do was come and, and pay respects to her friend. All she wanted to do was finish giving him a proper burial. But now she couldn't because she lost him. And she didn't just lose a friend. She lost what Jesus had gave him, the life, the belonging, the purpose. And so we see Mary again searching. And you want to know why? Well, Mary is searching once again because evidence is not enough. Evidence isn't enough to call off the search. You know, Mary is exhibit A for why evidence is not enough. I mean, think about it. Mary had been with Jesus for much of his ministry. And for much of that ministry, you want to know what Jesus did? Dozens and dozens of times. In Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 9, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, disciples, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to die. And when I die, in three days, I'm going to rise again. And so what happens on Easter Mary goes to the open tomb. She looks inside and she said, He did it! He is risen! He's risen indeed! No. She said, Who stole him? Where is he? I mean, all she had to do was some simple math. Let's see. Three days, he said. Month, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He did it. Guys, he... But no. She, she didn't do it. She thought they had stole them. I mean, I wonder why weren't Peter, John, and Mary camped outside waiting to see the greatest miracle ever. Did he not do enough miracles that they thought he'd go out with a bang? Did they forget what Jesus had said? That he would die, that he would rise, and he would do it? Oh, I'd submit to you that they didn't forget. They just didn't believe it. They didn't believe that Jesus was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so they were still searching for Jesus. That's why she was looking for him. And to call off the search 
to, to cease the search for Jesus, something much more spectacular, something much more miraculous is required. To call off the search, Jesus must find you. And that's the key takeaway this morning. If you are still following along, that is the one thing if you take away this morning, and that is this, to call off the search for Jesus, to stop looking for the answer to those questions. Jesus must find you. This is the essence of Easter. This is the substance of salvation, the crooks of the crucifixion. This is it, that Jesus has to be the one to come find you. I mean, Mary had two angels seated right before him and she didn't see it. She had angels asking her, who are you looking for? She had Jesus breathing down her neck, say, who is it? Who are you looking for? And she thought it was the gardener. She said, not now. Don't mess with me. Just tell me where you put them. And so Jesus, he had to ask her a follow-up question. After asking her, woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked a question that she likely thought about for the rest of her life. She said, Jesus, Jesus said to her, who are you looking for? And it was a question with a double meaning because he knew it was a guy named Jesus. But what he was asking was, what do you hope to get from the one you are looking for? Because Mary wanted Jesus back. But what she wanted when she was looking for Jesus was that guy who could push around demons? Was that guy who would give her a life? Was that guy who would give her a bunch of friends and belonging? And not the Jesus that would save her from her sins. And so Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? What do you hope to get from him? So let me ask you, who are you looking for? And what do you hope to get from him? Is it a Jesus who's going to take care of all of your busyness and stress? Is it a Jesus who's going to take care of all of your aches and pains and make them go away and maybe even heal your loved ones? Is it a Jesus who's going to purpose your life and pat you on the back whenever you do something good? Is it Jesus who's going to affirm you just the way you are? Is it a Jesus that's going to make sure the bills are paid, that your family is happy? What kind of Jesus are you looking for? Is it a Jesus who's going to make your life better? A Jesus who's going to help you with all your earthly problems? You see, if it's that Jesus that you're looking for, not only will you not find him, you will not see the real Jesus standing two feet in front of your face because Jesus must find you. To call off the search, Jesus must be the one to find you. Our searching isn't even enough to make us realize who he is. Our questioning, our pursuit of Jesus, it isn't enough to find Easter faith. If you would, take, take your worship guide. Look at, look at page eight. There's two paintings located there. The painting on the left is one of the first known pieces of artwork done by the Italian Renaissance painter Raphael. It's a painting appropriately called The Resurrection of Christ. 
In the painting, Christ is, is rising from the tomb. He's standing above a pretty contemporary-looking tomb. And outside the tomb, people are pointing at Jesus. The guards are pointing at Jesus. The angels are pointing at Jesus. And if you can see in the background, there are the women coming to the tomb, Mary Magdalene included, looking for Jesus. And Jesus is just hanging out as if people are going to see him and say, Hey, Jesus, I found you. And most pieces of Easter art look like this. It has Jesus coming out of the tomb with both hands on the side, looking strong like Superman. It's got light bursting forth from the tomb. And Jesus maybe hanging outside looking cool in a, you know, a light-colored garden, right? This is what Easter looks like. And yet, that scene is never depicted in Scripture. Quite the contrary, actually. Look at the other painting on the right. It's a painting done more recently, 2003 by James Martin, a picture called Resurrection Morning. There is a picture from the perspective of the tomb. The tomb's empty, the grave is opened. Christ is certainly alive. In fact, he is so alive that he has had time to leave the tomb and come back again. And guess what? He finds he finds Mary. He finds Mary bent over the tomb, weeping and searching for Jesus. And the exchange, it doesn't go like this, where Mary walks up to the tomb, hey, Jesus, hey, Mary, nice to see you. No, it's Jesus who gently puts his hand on the back of Mary, who gently puts that back, his hand, his nail-pierced hands on you and me and whispers your name. And says, Matt, Mary, I have found you. This artist's depiction shows the very moment where Mary realizes that Jesus isn't a gardener. He isn't just a good guy. He is her savior. Her savior from sin. A savior who has found her and called off the search. Have you ever been maybe disappointed in church or disappointed in Jesus, shaking your fist at God? If you have, you're in good company. The first ever Christian, Mary, the first ever person to see the resurrected Lord, she was pretty disappointed. That first Easter, she stood next to the open tomb, hoping that her Jesus would have been something else, would have been somewhere else, would have been in her life where she wanted him. And yet he wasn't there. So if you're disappointed in church, in God, in what he's doing in your life, that's okay. But ask yourself, why are you disappointed? Are you disappointed because you're looking for the wrong Jesus? Or could it be that it's this simple? That if you do not want most from Jesus Christ, what he gives, his forgiveness, his life, his salvation, you'll get nothing from him. But if, if that is what you want, if that title, son and daughter of God, is what you are looking for and everything that comes along with it, there you find everything. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then what? And then everything else will be given to you as well. 
When Jesus finds you, he calls off the search. And what he does is he does three things that I want to just look at this morning. When Jesus finds you, he pulls you out of the empty tomb. He calls you by name and he sends you on a mission. Take a look at that piece of art on the right again. There, Mary is the one in the tomb. It's not Jesus. So many Easter portraits show this light coming out of the tomb. But what's in the tomb? It's darkness. It's our darkness. It's our sin. And it's on the outside that we see the light. It's Jesus calling us out of darkness, out of death, out of sin, and grabbing us by the hand and pulling us into his wonderful light. When Jesus calls off the search and finds you, the very first thing he does is that, is that he reaches his nail-pierced hands into the tomb and pulls you out. You know, a father, he had two young sons. They were very young. They were four and six years old. And, and one day they were taking a walk through the woods. The six-year-old son, the older one, was an excitable young guy. And he was running ahead of his dad and his little brother. And he had a stick waving around in his hands. And he was waving it up in the air. And he hit a tree branch. And a bee came flying down and circled around him and stung him right here above the eye. The little guy dove into the grass, covered his face, and was shouting and rolling about, calling for his father to come help. And his dad walked over to help him. And before he knew it, the, the younger son, who didn't get stung by a bee, saw the bee and saw his brother rolling around and did the exact same thing. Whether out of empathy or just fear, he dove into the grass, covered his face, and started rolling around and crying. And so before helping either of his sons, the father kind of looked at the hilarity of the moment. But then before he helped the son who was actually hurt, he turned to the younger son and he said, Look, there's no need to cry. There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to worry. Nothing can harm you. As the older son stood up, he called him over and he showed him. He said, Look, the sting of the bee has been removed. And he pointed above his eye. Because if you know anything about bees, once they sting an animal or sting a person, their stinger comes out and it's gone. The power to hurt, the power to harm is gone. The only thing ha they have left is the power to create fear. And that's it. In our scripture lesson this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said this, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What an expression, the sting of death. But listen to what he says. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is just about one thing and one thing alone. It is not about personal empowerment. Easter and the resurrection story is not about fresh beginnings and new starts. No, it's about one thing. It's about the disarmament of death. It's about taking the power of death and removing it forever. Two things are certain in life, death and taxes. Every single year, tax season rolls around and there is a tax deadline. That causes angst that causes nervousness and fear. But the deadline of death 
rolls around just once in our life. And so it's easy to go a year, maybe even many years, without really thinking about what that means until someone we love, someone we know, dies. And then all of a sudden, that bee is buzzing around our head. It's there to remind us of our mortality, to remind us of our sinfulness, to remind us that our death is pending, just like everybody else. And yet I tell you the truth, listen, you do not need to fear death. The power of death is gone. The sting of death has been removed. What Christ Jesus did on Easter was something that he promised he would do from the very beginning. That he would crush Satan's head and he would release the power of Satan that he has over death, that he has over you. And so no longer do you have to fear death, no longer do you have to fear the devil because Jesus crushed him. And yeah, the devil stung him. But in doing so, our older brother Jesus removed the sting of death forever. When Christ finds you, the very first thing he does is give you his hand and he pulls you out of the empty tomb and he gives you everlasting life. But that's not all. He also calls you by name. He calls you by name and he gives you true belonging, true identity. That's the second blank if you're following along. When Jesus finds you, he calls you by name. One of the most incredible examples of God's grace seen in the garden that morning is the fact that Mary wasn't the only person there. No, Peter was also there. Peter, who Jesus gave the nickname The Rock and on whose confession he would build the church. He was there. You know who else was there? The Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved. He was there as well. But the most incredible, the most amazing example of God's grace is Jesus didn't reveal himself to Peter. He didn't reveal himself to John. He revealed himself to that crazy lady, Mary. He could have chosen, he could have arranged things to show up first to anybody he wanted. But he showed up to Mary. He could have chosen one of the leaders of his ministry team to show up to them, but he didn't. He showed up to someone who was a part of the support team. He could have showed up to a pillar of society, someone people would trust. But he showed up to an outcast. In a society that valued man's opinions over women's, he could have showed up to a man, but he didn't. He showed up to a woman. He showed up to Mary. And in doing so, what Jesus is saying is that when I call you, when I call you by name to be mine, I don't take into account your pedigree. I don't take into account your past, who you have been, what you have done, what you bring to the table, your talent, your zeal, or anything. When I call you by name, I call you by grace. I call you by grace to be mine and be my family my sisters, and my brothers. Listen to what Jesus says to Mary. He says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. For the first time in Scripture, Jesus calls his disciples family. He calls his disciples brothers. 
Mind you, this is Peter, the one who deserted him. These are the disciples who, who departed and dispersed during the time of need. And yet, what does Jesus call them? He doesn't call them dummies. He doesn't call them deserters. He doesn't call them delinquents. He doesn't even say, I'm Jesus, I'm back. Go tell my servants. No, he says, tell my brothers I'm here. Because when Christ calls us, he gives us a true identity. He gives us a true, true sense of belonging because he calls us to be sons and daughters, blood-bought brothers and sisters of the Most High God. If you're looking for a church home, if you're searching for a church home, can I, can I invite you to consider the way church? And I'm asking you that, and I'm, I'm inviting you that seriously, not because I'm the pastor, because if you were to come here, what you'd find out is that there's some messed up people. There's some imperfect people, even the pastor. If you come here, the worship style and even the songs we sing, they, it might not be your cup of tea. We might not have all the programs that you want for you or your children. We're a young church. We're seven months young. And so, God willing, we grow and we might experience some growing pains together. But I can promise you, that in this home, among this family, every single Sunday we will hold before your eyes the cross, the empty cross and the empty tomb. And what I promise you is that every single moment you are spending time with this family, we will love you because he first loved us. We will love you no matter what you've done. We will love you no matter what you're doing. We will love you no matter who you are or who you've been. We will love you no matter what you bring to the table or what you don't. Because that's how he loved us. When Christ calls off the search, when he finds you, he gives you his hand and he pulls you out of the tomb and he gives you life. He calls you by name and he gives you true belonging. And finally, when Christ Jesus finds you, he sends you on a mission to give away his limitless love. When Jesus finds Mary, the very first thing she does is wrap her arms around him and he says, Mary, you got to let me go. The very first thing that Jesus does to the very first witness, the very first Christian, the very first follower of Christ is that he sends her. Now listen to what he tells her. It's telling. He says, go tell my brothers I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He says, I am ascending. Jesus isn't called to go tell the disciples about the resurrection. They're called, she's called, to go tell about the ascension. What Jesus is saying is that just like Good Friday wasn't the end of the story, so also the resurrection, Easter Sunday, is not the end of the story. The end of the story is about the, is about the ascension. Jesus says, I am ascending to go prepare a place for you. I am ascending so that while I am gone, I won't be away from you, but my spirit will come to you. He will give you strength. He will give you power. He will give you faith. I am ascending so that in the end, when the end does come, you will always be with me. I am ascending, and so right now, I am, I am sending you. 
and he sends Mary. And because Mary went, because Mary went to tell the disciples, now the whole world knows Jesus' limitless love. What's the point of Christianity? What's the point of Easter morning? I hope that after this service, after this sermon, you'll know the point isn't to find Jesus, to come to a place in your life where you can say, hey, I've cleaned up my life, I've given it to Jesus, I'm good now. No, I hope you see that the point of Christianity, the point of all of this is that Jesus finds you. The, the game of Christianity, if you will, isn't hide and seek where you're found and you're done. It's kind of like tag, where Jesus tags you and now you are it. He is now sending you to go and share that limitless love with others. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. That's what makes Christianity unlike any other religion that there is. All other religions give you teaching. All other religions give you dogma, a way of life, a teacher, a teacher who's dead. But Christianity gives you a friend. Christianity gives you a savior and a God who is with you, who is your brother, who is always with you wherever you go. It gives you a Jesus and not a Jesus in general that isn't, isn't up to your life's challenges, but a Jesus who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. A Jesus who rose victorious for you so that you can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end I will see him with my own eyes. A Jesus who calls you by name and gives you a true sense of belonging. Belonging and a name so you know I am not a worthless sinner. I am not someone who's a mess up. I am not someone who is worthless. I am someone who is worth the blood of Christ. I am someone who is being acclaimed to the Father in heaven as his precious child. I'm someone who's been sent, someone sent on a mission to love. Evidence isn't enough for that. Evidence isn't enough to give that kind of Easter faith. One thing, one thing alone must be, and that is that Christ finds you. That is what Easter faith is about. Jesus finding you. And if you do not have that faith, you do not have anything. But if you do, if you have that Easter faith, you can call off the search because you will be found lacking nothing. Amen.